This is a really interesting election. It has been, in many ways, an issue-free election. This has not been an election around policy so much as it has been around legacy. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On October 2nd, Brazilians headed to the polls for the first round of national elections. At the top of the ticket were two very familiar names in Brazilian politics, incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro and former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known simply as Lula. These two men are starkly different kinds of politicians. Bolsonaro is very much a right-wing populist, often compared in style to Donald Trump. Lula is a former union leader who served as Brazil's president from 2003 to 2010 and later served 580 days in prison before his conviction was annulled. After the first round of presidential ballots were cast, Lula won 48.4% of the vote and Bolsonaro 42.2%. Since no candidate won over 50%, the election will go to a runoff on October 30th. This election is deeply consequential for the future of democracy in Brazil and also carries important international implications, which I discuss with my guest today, Matthew Taylor, a professor of international studies at the School of International Service at American University. We kick off discussing the first round results and electoral dynamics headed into the second round before having a deeper conversation about what this election means for Brazil and the world. And now here is my conversation with Matthew Taylor, professor of international studies at American University. This was a very unusual election. I think many observers were very surprised. The polls had been showing Lula ahead by as much as 14 to 17 percent. And in fact, in the first round of voting, Bolsonaro did much better than expected. Lula polled exactly where the polling agencies had suggested he would poll, perhaps even a little bit short of the 50 percent of the vote that some polling agencies had expected. Bolsonaro, on the other hand, was able to increase his expected vote total to an actual vote total of about 43%, meaning that it'll go to a second round at the end of the month. So all these polls had Bolsonaro so far behind the actual result from this week's election. We're speaking just a couple days after the election. Do we know yet what accounted for this discrepancy in what the polls showed and what the actual results were? I think that we'll never know exactly. 
There's a huge debate going on in Brazil right now among people at various polling companies, as well as political scientists. At the end of the day, it's really hard to know what went wrong. Some of this may be something that we've seen in other countries, that there's sort of an ashamed vote that some of the people who vote for right-wing populists like Bolsonaro or in the United States, Trump, may be ashamed to admit to pollsters that they are going to vote for their candidate. On the other hand, there may be changes in the way that polling works. That means that polling is not reaching the desired audience or the desired target group. In the particular case of Brazil, there's also some concern that partly because of a change in the census, the polls were not reaching lower income groups in the same way that they had in past elections. So there's sort of these methodological questions about the polls, but then there's also a question of which groups may have changed their intent from the polls to the actual voting booth. And there are at least three groups that are important here. The left and left of center voters, did they go all in on Lula or did they perhaps vote for third and fourth ranked candidates? A second group is supporters of conservatives and potential supporters of Bolsonaro. Did they decide to move their vote to Bolsonaro in the first round to ensure that there would be a second round, but they may intend to change their vote in the second round? And then there's a question about who abstained. And abstention was fairly high. It continues to grow in Brazil. It's about 21%. It was 21% in this first round. And we don't really know if the people who abstained were people who had signaled a vote for one or the other of the two leading candidates or not. So there are a lot of questions here, and we may never know the actual truth. But the second round will tell us a little bit about who is changing around and why they might be changing around and what sort of strategic goals voters have in mind as they go to the polls. So on that point, going forward, what are the electoral dynamics at play? Right now, it would seem that Lula is by far the favorite candidate, though Bolsonaro seemingly could pull off an upset. What would need to happen for Bolsonaro to pull off that upset? And conversely, what would need to happen for Lula to win? What are some of like the key dynamics at play right now? So, you know, I think that this is a classic case of electoral politics where each candidate is going to be trying to drive up the enthusiasm of their supporters and drive down the enthusiasm of the other guy's supporters. At present, the third and fourth ranked candidates, Simone Tebet and Ciro Gomez, account for just over 7% of the votes in the first round. Both of those candidates are more center, center left. And so we would assume that something like 70 or 80 percent of their supporters would go over to Lula. Experts on this particular election on an electoral politics in Brazil suggest that perhaps as much as a quarter of their supporters could go to Bolsonaro. But in terms of trying to win the election, if you're Bolsonaro right now, going for these third and fourth ranked candidates supporters may not be a winning strategy. The second possibility, though, for Bolsonaro is to try and go after those who abstained in the first round 
or to try to get Lula's supporters to abstain in the second round. And definitely, I think both of those tactics will be important in the campaign going forward. But that also assumes an ability to strategize that, you know, has not been Bolsonaro's forte. I think oftentimes Bolsonaro is his own worst enemy on the campaign trail. He certainly was in the first round. If he had been a more disciplined candidate, he might actually have done better. Much of what he did in the final weeks of the campaign actually may have driven down support for his candidacy, especially among women. So in terms of the electoral dynamics, we're going to see both sides trying to really activate their base and encourage the other guy's supporters to stay home. And there's a regional component to that. There's also a gender component to that. Lula does far better in the North, certainly the Northeast. He does much, much better among women. And the converse is true for Bolsonaro. So Lula and Bolsonaro are both very well-known entities, kind of big personalities, one on the left, the other on the right. Are there particular issues, however, that they are emphasizing during this election season and as we head to the second round? Or is the election really simply a referendum on the incumbent Bolsonaro and on right-wing populism versus left-wing populism more broadly? This is a really interesting election. It has been in many ways, an issue-free election. This has not been an election around policy so much as it has been around a legacy. And the legacy of the two men is incredibly different. Obviously, Lula, as president from 2003 to 2010, oversaw a huge boom in Brazil, a time of a growing middle class, a time during which there was an enormous emphasis on social equity and an effort by the federal government to improve transfers to the poorest of the poor. The other legacy, of course, is one that Lula would rather talk less about, which is the legacy both of corruption seen in the Mensalão and the Lava Jato scandals. The Operation Car Wash is often how it's translated. Like a big major corruption scandal that brought him down and many other Brazilian politicians. Well, it didn't actually bring down Lula. It brought down his successor, Dilma Rousseff, who was impeached in part, not really because of her participation in the car wash scandal, but more because of the way in which it threatened her allies in Congress who felt she was not doing enough to support them against this investigation. But the Mensa Laung began under Lula and concluded under Rousseff. It went to trial only once Rousseff was in office. And the car wash investigation actually began in 2014 after Lula had left office. Now, the fact of the matter is the scandal itself was intertwined with an economic crisis that began under Dilma Rousseff and that many believe was the result of economic policies that began to be put in place at the end of Lula's second term in 2009-2010 in response to the global financial crisis. So there are these two very negative legacies that Lula would like voters to ignore or to set aside or preferably not to recall, both the corruption legacy and the 
economic policy legacy. Brazil's economic growth began to stagnate in 2013. There were, of course, massive protests that began that year. And, you know, really since 2013, Brazil's growth has been anemic. So the halcyon years of Lula's presidency, when Brazil was growing at a remarkable rate, when the middle class was growing, when everything seemed to be, as they say in Brazil, a sky full of dessert delights. They say, which is a Brazilian treat. This was all left behind by 2014, but much of it, the decline began under Lula. So this is the very mixed legacy of Lula. The corresponding legacy for Bolsonaro is the legacy of the pandemic, which he really took an almost criminal approach to, doing very little to combat, foregoing much of Brazil's national healthcare system, really ignoring the crisis and doing very little to support citizens facing the pandemic. But then also a legacy of misogynistic comments, of racism, of extreme far-right positions, including a stated desire to return to the military regime that ruled Brazil from 1964 to 1985. So these are very complex men. Each of the two candidates has both some positives and some negatives, but to both sides, the negatives of their opponent outweigh any potential positives. In the interim period now between round one and the second round, which will come at the end of October, are there any key inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will signal to you how this election might unfold or how the campaign might unfold on both sides? I do think that your previous question about the issues is going to become much more important in the second round. I think that we will see the two candidates being forced to make a more significant statement about what they'll do in government. And the two areas in which this is going to be particularly important are economic policy and anti-corruption. So I do think that yesterday the markets rose as a result of the first round, and some have interpreted that as optimism that Bolsonaro and his more reformist economic policies might triumph. I think a perhaps more realistic interpretation of why the markets exploded yesterday has to do with the fact that the front runner, Lula, will probably be forced to make a statement about the kind of economic policies that he will implement. So far, he's been very vague on economic policy. He's trying to build a broad electoral coalition and I think has sought to be as broadly appealing as possible. But markets may want a a more concrete statement. And he will want to distinguish himself from Bolsonaro's more market-oriented reforms, but also not scare the markets in doing so. The second issue is corruption and anti-corruption. And one of the perhaps less commented on results of the first round of the elections was the Congress that was elected. The lower house of Congress is a lower house that is very much controlled and has been controlled, but after Sunday's election is 
equally controlled by the so-called parties of the big center. In Portuguese, they call it the centro. These are parties that are somewhat mercenary, that typically serve the government of the day, and they do so in exchange for largesse, in exchange for administrative posts, in exchange for budget items and budget guarantees. They do so in exchange for pork, so to speak. And what's very interesting is that the Centrão parties, the big center parties, are doing very well. They did extremely well in the election yesterday. And that means that whoever wins the presidential election is going to end up governing with a Congress that will include some of their supporters, but will also include a lot of these mercenary parties that are basically out for pork. I think that hems in whoever is elected, that will hem them in. It will mean that they will be able to do less on the economic reform agenda. But it also, because these parties have traditionally been deeply involved in corruption, it will also hem in what the new president will be able to do on the anti-corruption front. And certainly, if there's anything that we've seen in the seven years of the car wash investigation, it's that the power of these centrist parties to thwart corruption investigations is incredibly significant. And not only have they been able to thwart those investigations, but they've actually been able to water down anti-corruption reforms and even push back against anti-corruption efforts by presidents and by the presidential bureaucracy. So there has been much chatter and speculation that Bolsonaro may pull a Trump and reject the results of the election if, in fact, he loses and may try to stay in power. How serious do you take that prospect? And if indeed that does happen, are Brazilian institutions strong enough to uphold the legitimate results of the election? This is a very serious question. Bolsonaro is extremely capable of mischief. He has, over the past four years, made a number of statements questioning the electoral process, questioning the balloting process, questioning the neutrality of electoral courts. And all of those statements, without exception, are misleading at best. So he clearly has a strategy in mind to cast doubt and cast aspersions about the electoral process, full stop. The question that I have is about the discipline of Bolsonaro as a mischief maker. And Bolsonaro himself has proven to be perhaps less disciplined than he would need to be to actually overturn an election. And this isn't to say that I'm not extremely worried. I am extremely worried. But Bolsonaro has not shown the discipline that he would need to show to actually engage in a full front attack, assault on Brazilian democracy. In response to the second part of your question, Brazilian institutions have been relatively strong in putting together a united front against 
this kind of mischief making. And just to give you some examples of this, you know, there was an iconic moment a few months ago before the election where Bolsonaro was in a room at the inauguration of the new president of the electoral court in which he was facing down all of his predecessors who, you know, were sitting in the front row looking at him. And many of the speakers in the room spoke about the need to defend democracy, to defend democracy against misleading assaults. And clearly, you know, it was a sign that they would not go quietly into the night. So the strength of this united front against the assault on democracy, I think is unquestionable. However, Bolsonaro has done a lot to undermine many of the institutions, including the military. He's appointed thousands of military officers into government positions. There have been statements that are extremely worrying by senior military officers in support of Bolsonaro and questioning the electoral process. And so one really does have to worry about what sort of mischief he could get up to. I'd love to have you discuss some of the international implications of the coming elections. It seems that top might be how either candidate approaches conservation issues and biodiversity issues in the Amazon. It seems that the destruction of the Amazon and clearing of rainforest has accelerated under Bolsonaro, which would obviously augur poorly for global efforts to confront climate change. How do the candidates stand on that issue? And are there other key international issues at play in this election? In terms of the environment, the two candidates are quite different but not as different as we sometimes imagine. Obviously, under the PT governments of 2003 to 2014, preservation of the Amazon improved markedly, whereas under Bolsonaro, it has declined markedly. But that's not to say that the PT was always as green as many on the left and many within the environmental movement would have liked. And in fact, Partly because those boom years under the PT involved commodities, the PT took a somewhat ambivalent stance on the environment, on preservation, on the balance between the agricultural expansion of parts of Brazil's West and the preservation of the Amazon. On conservation, it's hard to imagine a president that would take a more antagonistic stance than Bolsonaro has, but the PT is by no means an unalloyed defender of the Amazon. The second area where I think they're quite different and would have important impacts internationally are on economic policy. And certainly the PT under Lula was an incredible leader on issues surrounding the poor but also had a fairly statist economic policy that under his successor, Dilma Rousseff, deepened and in many ways became unsustainable. And right now, Bolsonaro has been reformist. He has not been perhaps as 
enthusiastic a reformer as some had supposed, but he's definitely more reformist than many other Latin American countries are currently, whereas Lula would probably be a more tepid reformer. The third area, and I'll fold in the fourth, are democracy and anti-corruption. And I put those two together because I really think that the promise of democracy in Brazil has in many ways shown to be more shallow than people had expected, in part because of the corruption that plagues the political system. And so democracy as a whole has been delivering far less than many expected. And that, of course, enhances the appeal of populists, whether of right or left. Under Lula, that would be, I think, a more robust democracy. He was very committed to the independence of the three branches of government, but also of the prosecutor general's office, which is significant in Brazil. And he was very enthusiastic about reforming bureaucracy and empowering bureaucracy in ways that enhanced Brazilian democracy and made it reach deeper into the ranks of the middle class and the poor. Bolsonaro has been markedly different and much less enthusiastic about those kinds of reforms. And he's, of course, been, in some cases, openly antagonistic to democratic form democratic process, and in many cases, the institutions of democracy. The last point I would make about Brazil on the global stage under these two presidents has to do with relations with the global south, and particularly with the group of countries known as the BRICS. Brazil, India, China, South Africa. That's right. And the BRICS concept has fallen out of favor to some degree. The G20 is much less powerful than it was when Lula was last president. But I think that there is a very strong emphasis within the PT, and particularly within the PT foreign policy establishment, in favor of South-South relations, South-South cooperation. And I do think that this is important to keep in mind because it will have impacts on the global stage and on international relations. Brazil is, of course, a much weaker player today than it was when Lula was last president. But if he were to become president again, I, I do think we would see an effort to return to the kind of South-South cooperation that was much more important to Brazil in the 2000s than it has been over the last decade. So of all the countries in the BRICS, everyone except the S, South Africa, is currently a member of the UN Security Council, and Brazil will remain a member of the Security Council through 2023. Do you foresee any change in how Brazil approaches questions like Ukraine relations with Russia between the two countries? Most recently, for example... Brazil abstained from a Western-led resolution condemning Russia's you know, fake referendum in the annexed regions of Ukraine, and their abstention was joined by India and China as well. Right. And you've pointed to kind of the difficult ambivalence of Brazilian foreign policy, and in particular, the tendency to rely on a policy or a doctrine of non-intervention. And this leads Brazil into very strange positions of the sort that you've just described, abstaining on the one hand 
so as not to intervene, but also ignoring the important intervention in the sovereignty of Ukraine. So I would imagine that this would deepen under a Lula administration, but as you've pointed out, it has been existent under Bolsonaro. The more important thing here is that under Bolsonaro, Brazilian foreign policy lost any coherence and Bolsonaro's foreign policy was personalistic. It was led by a small cadre of family and friends. He chose extraordinarily unusual foreign ministers, people who didn't have a long tradition or a great reputation within Itamarachi, the foreign ministry. And under Lula, you would most likely see a return to a more institutionalized foreign policy. Whether that leads to coherent foreign policy stances is going to be an open question. And of course, there was not always consistency when Lula was last president. But there was at least a coherent strategy and one that was very focused on South-South relations. I would imagine that that would return and there would be a greater emphasis on trying to build the autonomy, once again, the autonomy of Brazil and of the Brazilian foreign policy establishment on the global stage. Thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.